0: A party for Voyager's 45th, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Join me at the Jet Propulsion Lab for a celebration of what is almost certainly the most popular planetary science mission of all time and stick around for another very special conversation with the person who served as creative director for the Voyager Golden Record, the great Andrewian. We'll wrap up today's bonus-length episode with what's up and the very cool Voyager prizes Bruce Betts and I will make available to the winner of a new space trivia contest. As this episode of our show is published, I may or may not still be on Florida's Space Coast, It all depends on whether that mighty new rocket, the Space Launch System, or SLS, launched during its first two-hour window on the morning of August 29th. I sure hope so, but I'm producing this show a couple of days before the 29th so that I can jump on a plane to the Kennedy Space Center. A very knowledgeable former NASA friend gives the Artemis 1 mission a 40% chance of liftoff during the first opportunity, which sounds about right. I'll stick around for the second attempt on Friday, September 2nd, if needed. Check out the August 26th edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, for links to our great coverage. Speaking of getting the first woman and the next man to the moon, as NASA likes to say, the U.S. Space Agency has selected 13 possible landing sites for Artemis three. All are in the south polar region of our trusty natural satellite, the region with those permanently shadowed areas with lots of water ice. The final decision is still many months away. Many of you have probably seen the jaw-dropping new infrared images of Jupiter delivered by the JWST. If not, you can check them out at planetary.org slash downlink. I was not surprised to read the JWST scientists are surprised and thrilled by the performance of their new space telescope. There's more to this story, and it includes the work of citizen scientist and image processor extraordinaire Judy Schmidt. Judy will join us here on Planetary Radio soon. Voyager 2 lifted off from Florida on August 20, 1977. Its sister craft, Voyager 1, followed on September 5. Scientists and engineers hoped they'd last at least five years. They've now been exploring and reporting their findings for nine times that span. Both are now deemed to have reached interstellar space, where most of the influence of our star ends and the forces of the vast Milky Way galaxy take over. Ahead is the Oort cloud of comets that reach halfway to the next nearest star— The Voyagers are unlikely to still be alive by then, but they will go on across the void for perhaps billions of years. Each carries greetings, messages of hope, pictures and sounds from across our life-filled planet, and the best playlist ever created, in my humble opinion. And all this is after they revealed the worlds of our outer solar system as never before, teaching us again that our neighborhood is full of surprises. It was several months ago that I first heard from Linda Spilker and Suzanne Dodd about their plans for a party. I'm so glad to have been invited. Linda has returned as deputy project scientist for Voyager, even as she continues as project scientist for Cassini. And Suzanne is the latest in a distinguished roster of project managers on the Voyager mission. Their party took place in the Jet Propulsion Lab's Von Karman Auditorium right where people have gathered over and over to hear the announcements of Voyager's discoveries for 45 years. Linda and Suzanne took turns as onstage MCs, welcoming current lab staff, interns born well after the Neptune encounter, media folks like me, and with great honor, members of the mission team who go back a half-century. None were as honored or celebrated as Ed Stone, the only project scientist Voyager has ever had. Ed's health prevented him from presenting, but he enjoyed being greeted by hundreds of attendees, young and old. Here's part of Suzanne's tribute from the von Karman stage. Ed's been
1: on the project for 50 years as a project scientist, and that almost deserves, I think, a standing ovation. So Ed, thank you so much
0: Many of you remember that we talked with new JPL director Lori Leshin on our July 27 episode. Lori took the stage to add her kudos for Voyager and its team.
2: Huge congratulations to this team. Uh, So many of you who have uh, been with this project over many years and, and all of us who stand in awe of it are thrilled to be here to celebrate you and that incredible, those two incredible spacecraft today. So I'm thrilled to have two of my predecessors here whose shoulders I stand on, and uh, this lab would not be where it is today without them, Ed and Charles, so thank you to you both, yes. But really this whole field, our whole discipline of planetary scientists of which I count myself as one, would not be here without this mission. I think Voyager and Viking really are the foundation upon which all of modern planetary science has been built. And yes, there are other missions we can argue about whether the earlier mariners and the flybys could, should, should get that credit and they probably should get some. But those two missions, and especially Voyager, as we look to the outer solar system now really becoming front and center in so many of our future uh, plans to explore. It's all about the foundation that Voyager laid. 45 years is an extraordinary accomplishment, but the foundation it laid and the legacy it leaves will live forever this mission will go on forever, because it will always be leading to that next level of exploration. And I've been talking a lot these days, people um, at headquarters are probably getting tired of me talking to them about the fact that I think we need to be thinking much more strategically about exploration of the outer solar system, more collectively, more how to get there more frequently than once in a generation, how to make sure it's accessible because of the worlds, the worlds that Voyager revealed to us are so extraordinarily interesting that we just have a very long to-do list in the outer solar system and so i am so grateful to get to be here at a moment when we are really working to build upon the extraordinary legacy of voyager i just hope that you all know that the legacy that you have set is is safe with us and we are really truly committed to carrying forward and building upon this inspirational mission that, that you have given us. And uh, not just with what follows on to it, but with these missions themselves. They're still going, right? I was like, 50 years, let's go. Let's, uh, we're already planning, so, yeah, the party. We're already planning the party for the 50 years. As, as Carl said, someday humanity will will venture beyond the solar system, will venture to the stars, and we won't be the first ones there. This craft is the first one. There can only ever be one first and that really is you. So I'm just incredibly inspired to be able to just be in the same room with so many of you who uh, have carried this mission forward and especially Ed, to you, thank you for the science and for the incredible discoveries and for 50 years of commitment, because you've been at it for 50 years with this mission, we will, um, we will carry that legacy forward.
0: We were also treated to the outstanding sixth episode of a documentary series by JPL's Blaine Baggett about the history of the lab. The footsteps of Voyager featured the encounters with Uranus and Neptune, and took us into the Voyager interstellar mission that continues today. You'll hear excerpts from it during my conversation with Andrewian in a few minutes, and we have a link on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. The party continued long after the formal program ended. With the full-size mock-up of a Voyager spacecraft as the backdrop, I ran into Linda Morabito. Linda, delighted to run into a former Planetary Society colleague, a treasured colleague. But also, you know, we just watched this second episode, The Encounters of Voyager with Uranus and Neptune and beyond. You must have been in the first episode because of your discovery. Remind us.
3: Long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> <laughs> I was working on the Voyager navigation mission and a completely successful encounter. One of the most exciting times of, of our lives to see uh, Jupiter up close, its moons. It was an amazing time, and to be responsible for. No pressure, but the successful navigation, the whole team that I was on of the Voyagers to to Jupiter. And it was very, very thrilling, wonderful time. But after it was all the excitement had subsided on March 9th of 1979, after the March 5th encounter, I was looking at the post-encounter planet um, pictures that had been taken for satellite ephemeris development, which, of course, was the refining the orbits of these moons that we had seen only previously from a great distance. And in doing that, in processing a picture, I was able to see something that it turns out no one had seen before.
0: And that was what now, Io is so justifiably famous for, the very first of its volcanoes that you picked out of an image.
3: Absolutely, it looked almost like another moon peeking out from behind Io, and we really had to use the scientific method to consider every possibility of what that crescent was, anomalous crescent, and it was in fact rising about 170 kilometers over the surface of Io, a volcanic plume, and just by the, the phase angle, the lighting, we were able to see simply a crescent of it. One of the most thrilling moments of my life, and I, I cannot even imagine how any scientist could have any more wonderful thing happen to them than those first moments of seeing that.
0: Outstanding moment in the history, the, the 45 year history of this mission, if you don't count what happened before launch, but also representative of so many other great discoveries.
3: Incredible, you've got four giant worlds and we rewrote the textbooks. The Voyager scientists, the engineers, took us to these worlds and showed us that they are alive, that the moons represent phenomena that we could never even have dreamed about or imagined. One discovery after the next. One incredible mission now representing all of humanity in interstellar space.
0: 50 years at JPL?
3: Yeah, 50, 50
0: years. Congratulations, Linda. It's wonderful so to see you.
3: Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks so
4: much.
0: And joining the party with big smiles on their faces were at least two JPL interns.
4: I am Marianne Benny-Fernandez, and I study at Stanford University.
5: Uh, I'm Abby, and I study at the University of Cambridge, and I'm an intern here at JPL. How is it? Did you just find out about this little celebration and decided to come by? Uh, there was an email a week ago and I, I thought I would pop by. I didn't expect it to be as amazing <laughs> as, it, as it was.
4: Yeah, I, I just could not believe. I, I was not sure if I would be able to come in because I was a little late. But then when I came in, I was totally stunned to see the audience and to see the, the people who actually worked on Voyager sitting over here in the same room where I was sitting. Yeah, I was totally stunned.
0: So let me make a wild guess. I bet neither one of you was born when <laughs> yes. Voyager did most
5: of the work that it's famous for. Of course, it's still doing that work. Am, am I right?
4: Yes, exactly.
5: <laughs> yeah, so I grew up seeing the pictures that Voyager put out, and it was kind of it's, uh, mind-blowing to, to know that the people who made those pictures are sitting in the same room as me, talking to me <laughs> as well. Did those pictures,
0: did that data, or, and just the mission itself, did it do you think have some influence over your decision to go in the direction that you've gone? I mean, the reason you're, you're intern's here now.
4: Yes, it, it did have a lot of influence on me because I think that's how it started with me wanting to always work for NASA someday. I'm an international student. I came to the U.S. to study like aerospace, but I never knew the trajectory to turn out like, to be, would be this amazing that I would one day get to work for JPL as an intern. Like I am totally stunned. Like I am so happy with the way things have turned out for me today.
5: Yeah, I, when I was uh, little, I would always look at these pictures of, of Neptune and Jupiter and be like so excited about, even, even seeing like pictures of Voyager as well, and that's kind of what inspired me, kind of sparked what I wanted to do, and now I'm here, and it's, <laughs> it's better than I, even imma- I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Well, well,
0: what are you doing now in your internships, and what do you hope to be doing as you head on into your career?
4: So at the moment I'm working on antennas because that's actually my field of depth and area that I would like to do research on and I'm trying to see like how it can help in deep space exploration basically.
5: Uh, I'm currently working on uncertainty analysis for Mars sample return and future landers as well and honestly that's kind of exactly the sort of stuff I want to be doing in the future so <laughs> it's, it's perfect.
0: Have a wonderful rest of your summer internship here at JPL. And uh, I bet you will always remember coming to this uh, little party for Voyager.
4: Yes, definitely. I am always going to remember this.
5: <laughs> Having all four, director, uh, all four of the last four directors in, in, the, in the room was amazing. <laughs> Best of success.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Nicola or Nikki Fox, heads the Heliophysics Division of NASA's Science Mission Directorate. We last heard from her in our January 12, 2022 show when we talked about the Parker Solar Probe. Pretty nice party. Glad you made it out.
6: I am totally delighted to be here. Um, It was a last-minute decision. Flew in last night, and I'm getting on a plane in a couple of hours, but Mm. it totally was worth it to just be here with the team, celebrate this incredible mission, and, of course, celebrate the just magic that is Ed Stone, um, the you know, the the lead scientist for this mission for 50 years. And so it was just so great to see him and just celebrate everything together.
0: I feel exactly the same. I'm so honored that I was even able to say hello to him again today. So uh, here's a mission that went from planetary science to your bailiwick, heliophysics. You must be pretty proud to have this as part of your uh, portfolio.
6: I am really proud of Voyager and it isn't just because you know it's an inspirational mission and it's you know all the all the things that we could talk about all the firsts that they've had but it actually opened up a new area of science for us taking pictures of the planets studying all the planets absolutely fabulous for us actually going out into interstellar space, leaving the environment that our sun controls and going out into that, you know, you think of it as like the cold, cold interstellar space um, of where that spacecraft is. And just when you think about how far away those spacecraft are, the light speed, the round trip light speed, 43 hours. I mean, that's, that's out there. That's really out there.
0: Did you see me talking to those two young people, both JPL interns, both born well after most of the big events happened in this mission. And yet they say that they were partly, they are partly here as interns and going in the direction they are because of this mission.
6: I can believe it. It is an inspirational mission. You know, it's almost like a mission that, that reinvented itself all the time. You know, you fly past one planetary body, you take groundbreaking firsts, and then when you do, you go to another one, and <laughs> then you go to another one, and then you think, oh, you know what, I'll leave the solar system. <laughs> I mean, it's just its just this inspirational mission. It just keeps giving and giving and giving.
0: Just one more question because you mentioned it on stage, and I've been reading a little bit la- uh, lately about how we might someday return to interstellar space with a a dedicated mission, one really designed for that. Could you talk about that?
6: Yes, certainly. We have a lot of really exciting mission concepts that are being discussed. Uh, Right now, we are actually kicking off our decadal survey for heliophysics. And so, you know, what are the next things we're going to do uh, in the the next decades to come? And certainly an interstellar probe, a mission that is actually designed to go straight out of the heliosphere um, and study that environment out there with dedicated instruments for that is really high up on, uh, I think, the community's priority list, along with other great missions too. But, you know, Interstellar Probe, definitely a a big candidate there.
0: Thank you, Nikki. Great to uh, see you again and glad you could make it to the party.
6: Thank you so much.
0: With the party mostly over, Suzanne Dodds and Linda Spilker joined me in the small museum next to von Karman Auditorium. Hell of a party, you two. When did we start to talk about this? I mean, you told me months ago, right, Linda?
7: Right. We knew the 45th anniversary was coming up several months ago. And so we started to plan an event at first, low key, show a movie, have the Voyager, you know, family from JPL there. And it suddenly, it just started to, to blossom and bloom and inviting retirees and, and the event really grew.
0: And you had cake, which you had promised uh, at the very beginning.
7: Yes, we had cake, and
1: um, I got to choose the flavors of the cake, so that at least I had some say. Um, it was a great event, and it's, it's great to have retirees come. It's great to mingle with current employees, and I think you know, everybody that was in the room is touched by Voyager, whether they had spent two years on it, 20 years on it, or even just if they're an intern in, in, in Voyager was what got them interested in space.
0: We were just talking about some of these those old-timers those uh, Voyager veterans, I mean, I saw Charlie Cole got to say hi. It really is wonderful to see this group come together again. And it was especially gratifying to see Ed Stone, that he was able to attend and, and, and enjoy this, even if he wasn't able to, to speak.
7: It was great to have Ed here and to recognize him for his 50 years as project scientist for Voyager and really he's sort of the the heart and soul of Voyager, you know, keeping the scientists on track and making sure that we got out to the heliopause. That's really a credit to Ed.
0: Suzanne, they showed the second episode in this sort of JPL history series that your colleague Blaine Baggett has done and this was largely, not entirely, Voyager at Uranus, Neptune, and beyond. Let me just thank you because there you were doing some kind of, you were anchoring some video coverage for one of those encounters. Thank you for not staying in my business because I don't need the competition. Uh,
1: Yes, I don't think I was very good back then. Um, That was probably my first experience on live television. My public speaking is better now. It was certainly enjoyable and uh, a little nerve-wracking, but the Neptune encounter was great. I I feel like it was a highlight of my uh, early career, for sure.
0: Is that about when you came on board, became part of the mission?
1: I was. I started in, uh, before the Uranus encounter, so I, I worked on Uranus with the science team, helping design their observations, and then for Neptune, I, I moved over to what's called the sequencing team, which is really the group of people that put together the sequences, the command strings that are going to get sent to the spacecraft. And you, you do your best. You do. You check it triple check it, quadruple check it, cross your fingers, it gets sent to the spacecraft and whoa, are you like glued to your screen to see if the correct images come down and things are pointed in the right direction. And it was just very gratifying to, to see it all work at Neptune.
0: Thank goodness all those zeros and ones were in the right place. Correct. Linda, we've talked about this before, but remind me, you, you came into this mission much earlier.
7: I actually came in in 1977 straight out of college, my first real job, and actually got here in time to go to the launch of Voyager 2. There was a science steering group meeting at the Cape and they invited all of us new, newcomers to come with them and be part of that launch and it was so exciting and, and I think about it, I don't think I could have imagined being here 45 years later with two working spacecraft now exploring interstellar space. It wasn't in the timeline. So, what's
0: happening? What are we continuing to discover out there in the interstellar void?
7: Well, the discoveries are quite interesting, Matt, because it's not what we expected. We had these ideas just from looking from the inside out, and now that Voyager is actually on the outside making measurements, for instance, it seems like the magnetic field from the Sun is controlling far out past the heliopause, and we haven't rotated the magnetic field yet into the direction of the interstellar magnetic field. We can measure the actual cosmic ray density for the first time because the heliopause is an excellent shield from those high energy cosmic rays, that radiation. And so it shields quite a a lot of them out and now we can measure them directly. Also there are shocks that come from the sun, propagate out into the interstellar medium and Voyager sees these shocks in the magnetic field data, in the plasma wave data and it's so exciting to see that interstellar space isn't boring. There's a, there's a lot to see out there. It's kind of like being in a turbulent sea, in a sense, and trying to sense the eddies and currents of interstellar space.
0: Suzanne, how are those two old-timers doing?
1: Well, they're, they're hanging in there. They are old-timers. Yeah, you may have heard recently we had a, a little hiccup with Voyager 1, although it looks like uh, we can get over that. We may need to operate the spacecraft slightly differently going forward, but that's what you do with any mission. Once you launch it, you can't go to it and fix it, right? In Voyager's case, it's a little bit of the extreme since it's 15 billion miles from us uh, and it's 1975 technology. Uh, but we can make, make changes to flight software and we can uh, sort of work around issues that there might be with um, command streams and things like that. So that's, we're really digging into the problem now, but I think we're, we will be able to work around it.
0: I've asked this question of Linda and others many times, but uh, how much longer do we think we have? Assuming everything continues to work, but those watts continue to fall as that, that RTG cools off.
1: Right. We lose four watts of power a year. And so we've over time, we've been turning off different subsystems, and we just finished turning off all the instrument heaters. The instruments, are miraculously, are still working. They're at, they're at temperatures that they weren't designed for, weren't tested for, uh, but yet they work, and all the data that's coming back is, is still great data. So, again, Voyager is a really incredibly remarkable spacecraft from a longevity standpoint. Um, but looking forward, you know, I would say we have a stretch goal of getting out to 200 AU. You know, as a manager, I say, that's my stretch goal. That's where I want to get, and that, that's 15 more years. I definitely think there'll be a 50th anniversary party and and likely with two spacecraft still operating. When we start to get to 2030, it might be a little more iffy, but every bit of data that Voyager takes now because it's in situ, it's in interstellar space is important, it's unique and it's important. And using in situ data with other spacecraft that are looking at the heliosphere remotely from like our Earth's orbit, you put that all together and you get a much better model of what's going on in in our heliosphere.
7: And still returning first. Yes, Voyager is definitely the pathfinder. And if you think about it, the two Voyagers are now our first interstellar travelers, collecting data in a place nothing has flown before and revealing new discoveries. And I'm sure there's more to come.
0: Thank you both. Once again, great party. So glad that I could join you, and I'll, I'll see you for the 50th.
7: Excellent. All Thank right. you so much. Yes, definitely. See you for the 50th.
0: The party's over, but the celebration continues in a minute with Andrew Ian. You'll want to stick around for this wonderful conversation.
8: Greetings. Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. We need your help as we launch a new and exciting project. It's a new subscription-style program for kids. We call it the Planetary Academy, and it's getting underway with a Kickstarter campaign. The Planetary Academy is a special learning and membership opportunity for kids ages 5 to 9. Young explorers will receive four Adventure Packs each year that have been developed by our experts. We're creating the first Adventure Packs right now. Academy members will learn all about our solar system through out-of-this-world activities and surprises, preparing them to blast off to exciting destinations. After this first successful year, we'll expand the Academy to a full three-year program that explorers and their families can renew annually. Will you help us kickstart the Planetary Academy by backing our project? Visit planetary.org slash academy today to learn more and get behind this exciting new opportunity. That's planetary.org slash academy. Thanks.
0: Welcome back. Andrewian is the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning creator, executive producer, writer, and director of the second and third seasons of Cosmos. She's also the founder of Cosmos Studios in Ithaca, New York. Forty-five years ago, she served as creative director for the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. The result was the golden records that are now headed across the cosmos. She partnered with Carl Sagan in life and in the creation of many of their best-known and most affecting books and other works, including Contact. So, I had many reasons to invite her back to Planetary Radio this week, We talked online a few days ago. You'll hear clips from that terrific new JPL documentary here and there.
9: Matt, it's always great to be with you. I look forward to our conversations.
0: As do I. It has never been less than both thrilling and delightful. So thank you so much, Anne.
9: My pleasure, completely.
0: 45 years across the solar system and beyond. As of August 23rd, the day before we're speaking, Voyager 1 is nearly 15 billion miles from Earth, which is about 157 astronomical units, traveling at just over 38,000 miles per hour. And though it takes nearly 22 hours for its data to reach us at the speed of light, this old robot is still phoning home to tell us now about interstellar space. Could you be more thrilled?
9: I could not be more thrilled, more proud to have had any relationship to what I consider one of the most significant missions in the history of our species. And uh, what a great metric that is of the vastness that traveling at, let's say, I'm going to use miles, but let's say at 38,000 miles per hour for 45 years. And yet it's not even a single light day from earth. Does that tell you just how big (laughs) the cosmos is and how, how impressive at the same time, two spacecraft built only 20 years after sputnik only 20 years after a simple aluminum bowling ball was the most ambitious and exciting thing we had ever launched into the cosmos and a mere 20 years later two interstellar craft built with the technology of the mid 1970s and yet still teaching us so much about our neighborhood. I just can't get over the genius of the engineers, the scientists, the technicians who built the Voyagers. And of course, you know, to know that on each of them is our golden record with all of its feeling and artistry, the talent, the musical talent of the world, the imagery. Mm the voices, the feelings. So when I think of Voyager, I just think, this is that rare place where our scientific cleverness and our artistic talent are converging in the same place to speak for us, perhaps even 5 billion with a B years from now, when when we will not be able to speak for ourselves how astonishing that
8: is
0: and I think you know that I am uh, just as enamored of that convergence of art and science uh, as you are perhaps in part because of the work that you and Carl Sagan have done that brought those seemingly disparate concepts together so beautifully we're going to come back to the golden record, of course. But uh, as you know, because I just mentioned it, uh, uh, the day after this, I will be at JPL for this celebration of the 45th anniversary of the, uh, the launch of both spacecraft. Visiting, I hope, with some of those team members, some of whom, one or two at least, were there at the very beginning. And I just wonder if maybe you have uh, a message, a, a greeting for them.
9: Oh, I absolutely do. I have a, more than a greeting, a hug, you know <laughs> a, a very passionate greeting, admiration and solidarity with the current Voyager family and with the greats of the original Voyager family. And of course, I'm thinking of the great Carl Sagan and Frank Drake, but also Ed Stone, for whom I have such admiration. And uh, Suzanne Dodd, mm. and so many wonderful people there. You know, I would stand and take off an imaginary hat to them in admiration for this stunning achievement, which not only is that convergence that we talked about of art and science, but also so benign mm. the idea that we can use our science and high technology. For the benefit of all Earth life, without hurting any of it, is another aspect of Voyager that fills me with pride.
0: Sadly, of course, uh, Ed Stone, who has been the project scientist for Voyager, still is, since before launch, I am told will be unable to join the celebration that takes place tomorrow. Um, you told me that you didn't have much direct interaction with him, but you did know him, and that I, I assume Carl yes. worked with him more closely.
9: Absolutely. I mean, I didn't work with Ed because my uh, small contribution was confined to the Voyager record. But of course, uh, because of my great good fortune to be uh, married to Carl, we were at every encounter, uh, spending very often months at a time around encounter as as the Voyagers made their way from world to world. During those times and in and in more recent years, my path has crossed with Ed. What a what a great scientist! What a great person! And what a worthy leader hmm. of uh, of the Voyager mission, Ed is.
0: And eventually, what a great leader of uh, of the Jet Propulsion Lab itself, as he uh, was yes. director there for yes. for many years. You must have been exposed on a regular basis to the enthusiasm of your husband. As data was returned, particularly during those encounters with the worlds of our solar system that Voyager, the two Voyager spacecraft uh, visited, what was that like?
9: It was exhilarating. It was thrilling uh, to be upstairs on one of the higher floors of one of the buildings at JPL where the imaging team was looking at the images as as they came in from the outer solar system. And to be sitting with perhaps six or a dozen uh, space scientists, uh, astronomers, geologists, looking at the data as it was coming in, our first close-up look at so many worlds, mm-hmm. so many moons. You know, it was thrilling. And then to lie awake at night with Carl, poring over these pictures, <laughs> and to hear. Him thinking out loud of what he was seeing, analyzing it, finding new questions to ask. Wow, it was was like a dream, really. You know, the Voyagers outperformed their design specifications in every conceivable way during that phase of the mission. And they still do. That's another reason why I can't help but smile with a sense. That here's a reason for hope. Because if we can do something as difficult, challenging, and as ambitious as what the Voyagers have accomplished and continue to accomplish against all odds, even greater than the most extravagant dreams of the team members of the mission, that says something about us as a species, that we have what it takes to exceed expectations. And of course, never, in my view, never in our history as a species have we been called upon to marshal those capabilities to save our civilization. So when I think of the voyagers I think you know we do have what it takes but what is really needed is a focus for our efforts and a the same kind of determination that the engineers and scientists and technicians brought to the voyagers
0: You also remind me of how much we could have uh, used uh, the Carl uh, uh, right mm. now Um I, mm. I I I think you know really? Yeah I think you know uh, Scott Bolton, the uh, principal investigator for the Juno mission. I mean, he he literally grew up with uh, Carl visiting his parents' home and visiting with him. Uh, I think you may also know the story about that night at JPL that um, Scott snuck into a room where he knew that there would be prints, because we weren't pre-digital then. That Absolutely. Were, yeah, they were not being distributed yet. He snuck in with a flashlight. He told us this story. And there he finds Carl doing the same thing, because neither one of them could wait until morning to get their hands uh, on on these images. I mean, I think that just says so much about both of these men.
9: Yes, and I remember those nights where Carl would go to JPL with his hunger, because remember... Carl came of age in a time where our closest view of of any of the planets were, you know, earthbound telescopes. And he dreamed his whole life from, you can see when he was just a child, but he was already dreaming of opportunities such as this one to, to look far more closely at these other worlds. And so I, I yes I well remember uh, you know Carl I remember pouring over the Viking images the first mm. Viking images mm-hmm. of Mars uh, with Carl in 1976 just the joy of what that was like so yeah that sounds like a true story God's telling. <laughs>
0: I remember uh, standing in uh, Von Karman Auditorium as a scruffy college radio reporter uh, watching those first images come in from uh, Viking 1 back in the summer of 76. And Carl was right across the room. Let's talk about that golden record. You see it in that place of pride over my shoulder here in my home office. Uh, Officially known as the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. How did you become the creative director for the development of that product?
9: It was a very, actually, very extraordinary series of events and developments for that time. So it's 1977, and Carl and I have worked with our close friends and colleagues on a project for the Children's Television Workshop that was never produced. Mm. But if it had been, it would have been Cosmos for kids, a kind of Sesame Street, uh, uh, but really Cosmos. That was our first experience of thinking together on an actual project. And I think it inspired Carl to approach me and Tim Ferriss and to ask us to collaborate with him on the Voyager record. In 1977, you know, that was a time where I remember in most situations never even getting to finish a sentence because what women had to say Mm. was so completely undervalued. And I know who was I? I was a 27-year-old without really any credentials. But Carl singled me out as someone whom he thought he could work with. And so when he asked me to be the creative director of the project, that was just such an amazing development because I knew that if I had that title on a NASA project, then my search for the sounds and the music and the various elements of the record was much more likely to be successful just because of that, Great prejudice against women at the time Mm. still exists, but then it was a kind of, it was accepted as the norm. Even with that title, when I would actually show up to try to get these sounds from the various sources, there were many times where I was literally kicked out of the office. And I remember one guy saying, you're telling me that NASA sent a little girl? (laughs) get you know my sound samples you know how dare they (sighs) and so that was the norm but carl was magnificently free of any of the blindnesses of that time he didn't rule anyone out and in fact if you look and i think it's the cosmic connection under chauvinism's the only entry is carbon-based life (laughs) (laughs) because that's who he was genuinely. And that's one of the countless reasons I am so proud of his life. He's one of the few people who you can look at all of his speeches, all of his articles, all of his books, all of his interviews, and you need not make any excuse for him. This is going back to the 1960s. You, because he was so free of those sicknesses, and uh, I think that's another reason why he's probably more beloved now hmm. than even back then.
0: I I suspect that his hunch about you back then, when he gave you that job, uh, proved to be uh, an even better choice than uh, than he realized when he made it. Um, Thank you. I think back also to, and you didn't have much time to do all of this, yeah. how in the world did you work through all of this content and then figure out what could actually be included on the record? I mean, now we could have included so much more because digital technology has come so far. but. Back then, you had a real limit, right, uh, on what you could put on this this message message to the stars.
9: Matt, you're you're absolutely right as usual. Uh, yes, we only had six months time for the entire project. Very limited budget. In fact, hmm. the entire project cost NASA eighteen thousand
0: dollars. Oh my gosh!
9: And that was with, <laughs> and that was with uh, Tim Ferriss and four or five other people and myself working full time on this project. You know, it wasn't that we were rich or anything like that. Uh, I had, you know, a very, uh, you know, sort of entry level jobs and was working to support myself. But here was a chance to confer the closest thing to immortality on the sounds and the music. And the images of our beautiful planet. And so the idea that we could touch this message in any way, it was, you know, more than enough reward. And so um, we were under a lot of pressure. We didn't have any of the capabilities. I mean, now, you know, very often I'm asked to work with people who are preparing new messages for sending beyond Earth. And I always demur demur because I always feel, you know, I gave it everything I had in 1977. And this is, it's a time now for new generations Mm. to send their own messages. But if I was doing it now for the first time, I would send the whole world wide web.
10: I would just, (laughs)
9: the good, the bad, the ugly, everything about us. That's because, first of all, there's no point in lying. You know, no lie uh, is so well constructed that it can live longer than, what, 20 years, 30 years, a century. They're very easily, usually, um, they fall apart because reality has so many, so many skeins of ca- causality mm-hmm. that it's really, it doesn't matter, like, what we pretend to be. So, um, yeah, I would just send everything about us Because then you'd be sending the contents of all the libraries on earth and much more. So it would be a completely different thing. I think the moment for sending that particular message was then. But I'm really gratified and delighted that so many people who are young now embrace the contents of the record. And many have said that it's the beginning of world music as hmm. a concept and a value for the United States. Because remember, in 1977, the only time we ever heard music from another country was really the odd one-hit novelty piece that people would take to their hearts. But there was not this popular cultural search for the music of other, of other cultures. And in Voyager, that's exactly what we aspired to do, was to give representation to as many of the great musical traditions of the world as we possibly could.
11: Sagan also led the team that designed Voyager's golden record. It is a greeting card containing sights and sounds of our planet. Should one day somewhere in interstellar space, a wayfarer were to stumble upon the spacecraft and wonder, who had sent it on its adventure?
0: Just one other question for you about the record, but uh, I, I wonder if, at the time, does anything stand out among those pieces of art, bits of sound, images that you simply could not include that you you wish you could have? I mean, what 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 was your biggest regret?
9: Well, I had a couple. One was that NASA at the time would not let us send the image of the frontally naked couple that was very carefully thought out. The woman was pregnant, and so there were overlays and successive images of the fetus within her. Ah. And they were frontally naked, of course, and NASA was, no. And there were members of Congress who stepped in who were like, You want to send smut to the stars? (laughs) And that to me was a very tragic indicator of our self-hatred. You know, the idea that we hated ourselves so much that we didn't dare stand naked before uh, the universe in this story that we were trying to tell about who we really are. I've often thought of that image and what a a shame that wasn't included. A personal favorite of mine is Bob Marley and a personal favorite among his just remarkable treasury of great music is No Woman, No Cry. Mm -hmm. And so I had this sort of personal feeling that I wished we could have sent uh, his music. But apart from that, I'm so proud of of what we did send and the fact that we were successful in making this a non-nationalistic uh, presentation, but something that really reflected the, the whole tapestry of world music.
0: Two thoughts come to mind. One, uh, it's a good thing it's too late to recall Pioneers 10 and 11 with, with their nude uh, depictions. and And two... Yes. I don't think we have to wait for ET to send us that message send more Chuck Berry. It's delightful to know that Chuck is out there among the stars as well.
9: Yes. You know, Chuck told me that was, that brought, he was in a period of tremendous despair Mm. when the Voyager records were sent. And that lifted him up out of this feeling that all of the work he'd done and all of the music he'd created was possibly you know not going to be valued as highly as
11: it should be. At the end of the encounter at Neptune and Triton, a celebration organized by Carl Sagan and the Planetary Society was held on JPL's mall. The evening featured a surprise appearance by rock and roll great Chuck Berry. It was a fitting choice as Berry's music was now sailing outward toward the stars. Aboard Voyager's Golden Record. That was only one of many reasons to celebrate.
9: Yeah, and Blind Willie Johnson, who you know, no one had ever heard of at the time, you know, aside from, you know, the connoisseurs of mm. uh, Delta Blues yeah, and uh, the yeah. great mu- music of the past. But the idea that this human being, who's, who's genius was so disregarded that he died of exposure Uh to the rain because he didn't even have a shelter to protect him from the elements. And that his music lives on in Dark Was the Night, as close to forever as we get. That and the great Louis Armstrong and the Peruvian panpipes and the Japanese shakuhachi and the Japanese gamelan and the Senegalese... Cushion piece and some twenty-five other pieces of music will really never die.
0: And and one woman's uh, brain waves, right?
9: Yes. Yeah. Well, personally, that's the thing that really gets me is to have fallen in true love with Carl Sagan during the making of this record, and then to have had my brain waves, rapid eye movement heart sounds, every single signal that I was giving off uh, at that time during an hour of meditation about the history of the world hmm. and the meaning of love, a mere three days after Carl and I had fallen deeply into true love, the idea that that's on the Voyager record, my brain waves in a kind of joyfulness that has proven every day since to have been completely well-founded and valid, uh, that's that's really meant everything.
0: The essence of one human being's physical presence uh, in the universe, uh, I would say. You know that we love, whenever we get the opportunity at the Planetary Society and here on this show, to... Uh, Listen to or uh, repeat what I am going to call the pale blue dot soliloquy. Ah. If you could take us back to that fight that uh, that Carl and you waged to turn Voyager around when it was past Neptune and look back at, at our home planet.
9: Well, that was all Carl. That wasn't mm. me. I, I, of course, I'm sure I encouraged him, but... It was Carl's brilliant idea in 1981 to appreciate that when Voyager had taken its last pictures of the worlds of the outer solar system, after the Neptune encounter, that Voyager 1 could now turn its cameras homeward to look at the sun, and its retinal planets. He started lobbying NASA in 1981, eight years before the last uh, Voyager encounter, uh, saying, would they please arrange to take this, these last pictures of the home planet and its sibling planets? And NASA, for the first six, seven years, was completely resistant to this idea, and they would say things like, "It'll fry the lenses of the camera to look towards the sun." Of course, the camera. What else was there to look at? Not going be used ever again. Yeah, really? So. <laughs> or they would say, "What's the scientific value
12: mm.
9: of of such a picture?" And Carl understood that here was the potential for the greatest teachable moment perhaps in human history at the time it was most urgently needed to actually see our true circumstances Hmm. to understand the earth as a mere pixel in the solar system let alone the milky way galaxy and the universe to take us to wean us from our delusions of importance and centrality but also to wean us of the delusion that this earth was infinitely plunderable and exploitable and that we could go on ruining the environment that sustains us without ever having to be held accountable for these crimes. And so he would schlep to Washington DC to NASA headquarters on numerous occasions And when he was out at JPL pleading to have this picture taken. And it wasn't until, I I believe, around the time of the Neptune encounter that he was first told that they had decided to do it. And so on Valentine's Day, 1990, as imagine the beautiful Voyager 1 rising from the plane of the solar system and all the dust, and looking down, looking back to the sun and its family of planets to see that even the mightiest among them was essentially a dot. It was soon after that, sitting in our living room, in the same house I'm in right now, Hmm. that we stared at the pictures of the family album of the sun, he called it. Each picture, and then focus particularly on the image of Earth. And the two of us had a kind of meditation, which became the pale blue
11: dot—the
9: mm. liturgy, mostly Carl, but a phrase here and there from me. Anecdotally, it, the input that I get every single day from all over the world requesting the rights to reproduce in one fashion or another the pale blue dot soliloquy is any indication uh, it 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 hit its mark people it's not a thing that gives me hope i think there is a coalescing community of people on earth who really want to see us cherish and treat each other more kindly and take care of this tiny planet and so that in the long term our children, grandchildren and mares will be able to enjoy the beauty of this world. In
11: 1990 Voyager 1, over three and a half billion miles away from its home, snapped these images. This first ever family portrait of the solar system was the idea of scientist Carl Sagan.
13: Consider again that dot that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, In all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. For the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.
0: I think it will live on for a very, very long time. Um, we're nearing the end of our time together. Just a couple of other questions. I you know, last night I went on the Cosmos Studios website and watched the trailer for Cosmos Season Three for the first time in maybe a couple of years. Watch the whole series, of course. I'll tell you it's on the DVR downstairs. <laughs> It pulled me right back in. It was just spellbinding. Can can we hope for a continuation? Is there hope for a fourth season? Or is there anything else you're up to? I know you told me about one thing we can't really talk about yet, but you're obviously staying very busy.
9: I am very busy, as busy as ever. Thank you so much for what you said about season three of Cosmos, Matt. That means so much to me. Yes, I have been... Working with Brandon Braga and Sam Sagan, whose new series is out this week for Bill Nye, we have been collaborating on a new season of Cosmos. So let's hope that that comes to fruition. And there are actually four other projects mm. that are in, you know, very vigorous shape. And mm. I think that um, I think they all have. A, excellent chances of materializing and so uh, i can't really announce anything yet but i have a lot of hope for these projects that are keeping me very busy you know i just feel so strongly that what we need is to awaken to the glory of nature as revealed by science that's what will make us act in defense of our little part of it and science is delivering the goods, it's warned us of the dangers we face for more than a hundred years. And it got it got those things right, which is a predictive power unrivaled like any other human enterprise. And then there's the joy of the web telescope and all of the great things that the scientific community is doing. And so I see as my lifelong passion communicating the power of the scientific perspective and doing it so painlessly <laughs> that that it just becomes kind of a natural experience. So Let's see. I hope I get to do a lot of these projects.
0: Painlessly and beautifully, I'm I'm glad to hear that we have uh, more to look forward to. I'm going to push my luck here in a couple of ways, both in terms of time and uh, sort of shot in the dark, with one more question. Oh, uh, please. Ha- thank you. Have you ever seen the movie Things to Come, the 1936 film? I sure have, on... yes. Okay. It has meant a lot to me my whole life. I've been a fan my whole life. In the closing scene, the character played by Raymond Massey is watching a spacecraft carry his daughter and some other young people toward the moon. And his closing speech about why we must explore has always inspired me. And, you know, like, the, like the whole film, there are portions of that speech and the film itself that are you know awfully dated now. Still, when he says, I think the line is, um, all the universe or nothingness, which shall it be?
9: Yes, and in fact, I think also H.G. Wells said something like the stars are nothing, something on that same theme, which was so prescient of the creators of that amazing film and of H.G. Wells, who was a visionary, uh, unparalleled. Yeah. And that sense that either we use our cleverness to learn how to... Take care of each other and the planet and venture forward to explore? Or we turn those powers into destruction, into a kind of internecine, suicidal civilization that does not take our species forward, does not honor the existence of the other life forms with whom we share this planet? That's the question. That is really the question, will we put all our resources into ensuring that our civilization survives and brings out the best in the people who inhabit it, or are we going to destroy ourselves? It's been true, we've known this in one form or another for a century now. And to me, this question seems more current, more urgent than it ever has. And uh, yeah, I, I just don't want to go on too long, but I have to tell you that that film and of course the 1939 World's Fair, which was Carl's great moment of breakthrough at the age of five, uh, that there was such a thing as the future and that mm. science was the way to get to it. My own experience in the 1964 World's Fair Uh, as a kid from Queens who grew up next to it. Those were really pivotal moments in our lives. And I think with this great shadow hanging over our future right now, we all feel it. And the question is, do we have the courage to imagine the kind of future that's worthy of our children and grandchildren and to do the hard work right now to make sure that they live to enjoy it? That's the
0: question. Thank you for capturing so much of that optimism. Uh, In Cosmos, uh, the third season, which had to do with a World's Fair, uh, but also in so much of the other work that uh, you have undertaken with your colleagues and, of course, your your great colleague, your life colleague, uh, Carl Sagan. And uh, let's hope that this work and the Voyager spacecraft uh, continue to be in the vanguard of of leading us uh, toward that, uh, that tomorrow that I think humanity is capable of. Thank you so much,
9: Anne. Oh, Matt, every time we have a chance to have a conversation, I always just feel so uplifted by it. Thank <sighs> you so much. Anytime, anytime, I look forward to the next one.
0: Back at you, times 10. Uh, we've been talking with Anne Druyan.
12: Every human culture has rites of passage. They mark the transition from one stage of life to another. We are gathered here to celebrate Voyager's rite of passage. A machine designed, built and operated right here at JPL has broken free of the sun's gravity, explored most of the worlds of the solar system and is now on its way to the great dark ocean of interstellar space. The men and women responsible are gathered here. They are heroes of human accomplishment. Their deeds will be remembered in the history books. Our remote descendants may live on some of the world's first revealed to us by Voyager. If so, those descendants will look back upon us as we look on Christopher Columbus. Voyager reminds us, Of the rarity and preciousness of what our planet holds of our responsibility to preserve life on earth if we are capable of such grand long-term benign visionary high technology endeavors as voyager can we not use our technological gifts and long-term vision to put this planet right to take care of one another to cherish the earth and bravely to venture forth in the footsteps of Voyager to the planets and the stars.
0: Time for a uh, Voyager special anniversary edition of What's Up? And here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Hey there. You're obviously a
10: fan of that mission. Huge fan. Hard to be into planetary science and not be a huge fan of Voyager.
0: Yeah. I was showing posters to somebody at the office yesterday, and there was the there were the mission posters uh, done for us by Chop Shop. We had done the poll for them, and Voyager was chosen at that point as the people's favorite planetary science robotic mission, and I, I think that's still true.
10: It's quite amazing. It's hard to argue with its longevity or... Uh, the new worlds that the two spacecraft open up to us. Yeah. So what do you want to open up to us? Uh, old worlds uh, <laughs> that we've seen before, but it's neat to see them again. Saturn up at sunset in the east, looking yellowish. We've got an hour or two later, we've got Jupiter coming up bright in the east. A couple hours later, we got Mars in the middle of the night and coming up earlier all the time and getting brighter all the time as Earth and Mars grow closer over the next couple months. And uh, near Mars, check out Aldebaran, which is a bright reddish star that'll be near the even much brighter these days, Mars, who is, of course, reddish. And in the pre dawn sky, if you've got a nice clear view to the eastern horizon, you can check out Venus. Otherwise, it's going to be tough. It's, uh, it's going away. It's taking a sabbatical for a little bit and mm-hmm. it's just headed off. We move on to this week in space history. Anything happened this week, Matt?
0: It remains to be seen as we speak, but uh, I bet you have other stuff that already happened.
10: It turns out, and you probably haven't discussed this, but 1977, Voyager 1 was launched. Oh, there's that. (laughs) Details. A year earlier, uh, Viking 2 landed successfully on Mars. We move on to random space fact. I've never uh, been a huge fan of the hypothetical uh, disturbing facts, but... uh, People seem to enjoy them, so here you go. Here's one for all of you: An unprotected human, somehow riding on Voyager One during its Jupiter encounter, would <laughs> have received a radiation dose equal to one thousand times the lethal level. Now, Is that of course, all? they would be in a in a vacuum of space as soon as it launched. So you know, it's a it's. Very hypothetical, but yeah, only a thousand times. If it were five hundred times, then you know, action heroes could make it through. But I don't, I don't think they're going to survive a thousand times.
0: Plus, I think that the mini fridge on the Voyager spacecraft was eliminated for budgetary and mass reasons early on. So you probably have nothing to keep your sandwich, uh, your McDLT cold.
10: <laughs> but there, there's some uh RTGs with the that'll keep them warm some uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators good thinking good thinking. although they're they're cooling off all the time I don't know why you don't like this stuff I love it hey let's
0: go on to what may have been the most frustrating and poorly responded to contest in the history of planetary radio yes
10: i mean <laughs> i am so sorry <laughs> sadly it refers to a Planetary Society project, totally new kind of thing that was on a spacecraft that failed. What TPS spacecraft flight project had a penguin as part of its logo? We did great. We got at least a two maybe six entries right <laughs> a few more than that but not many
0: most of you talked about how tough this was many of you said that you were making guesses and we got some some pretty interesting uh guesses uh along the way like i sat which was not a planetary society project Michael Unger in British Columbia came up with a 1999 Betchard expedition or excursion to Antarctica. Betchard, of course, being the a travel company that the Planetary Society partners with the best uh, entry that I got came from uh, Joseph Caliputre in uh, New Jersey. He said, there is no penguin.
10: It's all in your mind. And he's right. <laughs> no, no, he's not. There was there was a two dimensional penguin. There was even a three dimensional plush penguin. I've heard.
0: How about this? Mel Powell in California says it was his first pure guess in all the years he has entered the contest. Never missed week. Wow. Here's his apparently Vulcan deduction. He remembered that I had said it was before my time at the Society. You, Bruce, said it was a known TPS program. And lastly, his connection of the word polar, elementary, my dear Powell, Mr. Powell, he came up with uh, the Mars microphone. Was he right? Nailed it. Congratulations, Mel. But there were only two other correct answers. So I'm also going to credit John Guyton in Australia, who said, tough one, give me more. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And finally, our own poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, not only got it right, but uh, had a poem to accompany it. Here it is. Back in 1999, a contest was begun to name a bird departing for the fourth rock from the sun "'Twas a penguin, colored green, and headed far from home, a mascot on the logo of a Martian microphone. It was named for Admiral Byrd, a southern polar guy, but unlike him, our penguin launched into the earthly skies. I draw a curtain over what the ending had in store, but it will be sufficient that a penguin never
10: soars." <laughs> oh, <God>. Oh, wow. <laughs> Too soon? Yeah, I was involved with all the other permutations of microphones that either flew and didn't go on, or didn't get accepted, or anyway, it's a long sad story. Fortunately, now others have followed in our wake and gotten sounds from Mars perseverance, perseverance rover. Uh, I'm really impressed. He not only got it right; he knew the penguin was green and named Admiral Bird. Those are correct, and I uh, I will send you a. A picture of the Mars microphone sticker. Uh, so, it was the first attempt to get sounds from the surface of Mars. Unfortunately, it was uh, on board the Mars Polar Lander spacecraft, which failed when trying to land in the polar regions where penguins hang out in the South Pole. Okay, all right.
0: <laughs> well, Dave Fairchild, uh, believe it or not, random.org didn't have a whole lot to choose from, but it did choose you. So, we're going to send you that copy of The Spacefarer's Handbook, Science and Life Beyond Earth, by Brigitte and Urs Gans. Uh, it's a really fun book uh, to read. And Mel and John Guyton, will come up with something for uh, the two of you as well. I don't know, maybe uh, a nice little uh, rubber asteroid or, or two. How's that?
10: Yeah, it's nice of you. Good job. And nice job, everyone, and sorry to torture you. Uh, we talk about Mars microphones, including this one on our site, but somehow over the years, Admiral Byrd has faded away. I have really been looking forward to this
0: next contest because it is uh, Voyager focused at least in terms of prize. I haven't heard the question yet. What have you got for us?
10: All right. I went through many permutations but uh, I decided to do something that looks at the length of time the Voyagers have been successfully flying. They're still working. Here's your question. How many JPL directors have there been since the Voyagers launched? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest.
0: You need to get us this one by the 7th. That'll be Wednesday, September 7th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here are the great prizes, plural. Oh, yeah, I know. Voyager uh, photographs from humanity's greatest journey. It is a brand new coffee table uh, book. Just looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, It's from Jens Besmer. He's the author. One of the two authors, Joel Mader as well. It's from Tenoya's Publishing, and uh, it's already on Amazon. It's brand new. Uh, You can probably find it, I'm sure, other places as well. But wait, there's more. No way. (laughs) Back during the Neptune encounter of 1989, August 1989, the Planetary Society had some medallions made. and On one side, it says, the Planetary Society salutes the men and women of Voyager, And there were 5,000 of these medallions made. I'm holding number 3,618. On the back is the uh, design that decorates the cover for the Voyager golden record on both uh, spacecraft, which uh, I have uh, right behind me here in my office as well. We have one of those at least that we can send out uh, to the winner of uh, the book, uh, the Voyager book. Get those entries in everybody by the 7th
10: i'd like to make one little clarification because uh maybe people won't get mad at me include acting directors all right everybody go out there look up in the night sky and think about what you were doing 45 years ago and whether you're still working thank you and good night
0: just barely i think i'm i think i'm due to uh, going for the shop for a tune-up just like the voyager spacecraft but bruce of course is the chief scientist and he's in great shape right here on what's up Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its voyaging members. Become part of our journey at planetaryorg join. Arco Verde and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.